scripture today from 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I've been doing a three-week series where rather than exegeting the Bible, I've been sort of exegeting the culture. And uh, if you missed any of the sermons, we, I do post the audio of the sermons online. Get there through our church website or just look up my name uh, in uh, your podcast app on your phone or on your computer. Um, but so we, the first week we sort of talked about how the world was changing. And I, I brought my father-in-law and my son up to talk about the change from a Gutenberger world to a Googler world. And just how much our world is, is really shifting. And I think it's been shifting for a long time, but I think COVID sort of sped that up. And then last week I talked about uh, COVID and what it was like to go through uh, this pandemic. And one thing I said was that I think we're sort of post-COVID, like we're not real worried about COVID. I know people that have it right now, but we're not totally out of it. But we have not lost the pandemic mindset. And I I think I I talked about um, just how that I think is messing with people's minds, people's mental health, our relationships and a lot of that. And today I want to take some of those lessons and then sort of look at what does all this mean for the future of the church? Right. What is what does all this mean for what it means to be a church in the future? And so I thought a lot about how to do this, and I decided I was going to do it in five metaphors. So in your bulletin is that insert, and you'll see five metaphors for the future church. That's my sermon outline. There you can follow right along. Um, but, uh, but I'm going to show you five metaphors that, it, that I think about that you may have heard me share in pieces, but I thought would just be helpful to share them. And the first one is a phone booth. I was at a, a conference about, uh, oh, it was about nine years ago, called the Festival of Homiletics, and I heard a pastor, Nadia Bowles Weber, talk about phone booths. How many of you remember phone booths? You remember pay phones? Yeah, you had, to, you had to put your quarter in. Remember when you used to carry around money? Some of you still carry around money. Um, but you remember a phone booth? You had to get in the box, and you had to call. You're always worried about what kind of stickers were posted on the side, depending on where you were. And... Um, you know, there's really not phone booths anymore. I think there may be one for the Amish, right? I mean, we, they're, they're about the only time you see them now is like that. Um, but, but you never see phone booths anymore. Now, you could look at that. Let's say a, an, a, uh, an archaeologist from the future comes back and looks at our time period and says, hey, there were no phone booths. You know what? Probably no one was talking on the phone. Right, you could assume, hey, no phone booths, nobody's talking on the phone. But is that true? No, everybody's on their phone constantly. We're on the phone way more. Okay, the thing is, we don't use phone booths anymore. The method of how we talk about, or talk on the phone is different. Now, we, we all know that there are a lot of people that do not go to church. A lot of people that have never gone to church. A lot of you have friends, a lot of you have kids and grandkids that don't go to church. And, and for a lot of people, I hear this very often. Why? Like, how come they don't go to church anymore? And the narrative seems to be, and, and this pastor was sort of making this point, the narrative seems to be, oh, it's because we're in such a secular culture. 
They don't have, they don't have spiritual conversations anymore. Like they're not on the phone anymore. That's not true. You look at our culture, we're having a ton of spiritual conversations. Okay, you go to the movies. A ton of the movies are about spiritual conversations. And one of the popular shows on Netflix right now, Moon Knight, is all about Egypt, Egyptian mythology. Okay, you got movies about vampires and, and, uh, and magic. And you, you can see Finding Bigfoot on Animal Planet. And you see UFO shows on the History Channel. Okay? So when we say, oh, these people, this is a secular culture, they're not having spiritual conversations anymore. Yes, they are. They're probably having more spiritual conversations. What they're not doing is using the phone booth anymore. Okay? They're not having it here. They're not having it in the church. They don't know that they should have it in the church. Uh, And what they say is, how many of you have heard this? I'm spiritual, but not religious. All the time I hear this, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And that's funny for some of us who have been a part of the church. Because for me, those two go together. I find Jesus through this stuff. And I think when people say that, my friend Graham Sanders says this, that when people say they're spiritual but not religious, what they really are doing is critiquing the church. What they're really saying about the church is, you all are religious but not spiritual. So I don't need the religious stuff. I'm going to go do the spiritual stuff on my own. And they don't know that, hey, we hold the keys to thousands of years of people trying to figure out this spiritual stuff. See, the world is actually having a lot of spiritual conversations. The problem is they're not having it in the church anymore. And, and we got to learn how to deal with that. Right? And it's not enough to paint the phone book or the phone booth. Okay? They're not having conversations the way we're used to having, having conversations. And so we've got to learn how to find ways to help them have those conversations. We've got to help them realize that we're having those conversations in here. And that, that's why a lot of younger people have walked away from the church. It's because they, they have never really experienced the spiritual in church. They've only experienced the religion. So phone booths, I think, is a good way to think about how this world is actually very spiritual. They're just not having spiritual conversations in the church. And that is something we need to talk about and think about. This leads us to our second metaphor for the church, a rummage sale. I thought this would be a very good and very apt image for uh, our church since we do flea markets and rummage sales. Right. And we're currently doing a book sale. Um, a rummage sale. I got this one from an author named Phyllis Tickle. Phyllis died a few years ago, but I got to meet her at that same conference I heard about telephone booths. And she wrote a lot about the future of the church and what's going on in the church. And she pointed out that about every 500 years, the world has a major upheaval and the church has to change. So just think about this for a moment. I, I don't want to go into this too deeply. But 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire is growing and gaining power. A lot of ancient ways of thinking are moving into more Greco-Roman ways of thinking. This man named Jesus comes on the stage. And religion and a lot of life changes dramatically. 1,500 years ago, the 6th century, the fall of the Roman Empire, the start of what's called the Dark Ages. So there's this huge move towards superstition, a lot more poverty in the world. It was, it was really kind of a crazy time. That would last 1,000 years. 1,000 years ago... Um, it's still the dark ages, but in the church there was this major upheaval because the East and the West church split. The Orthodox and the Catholic church split. It became this major to-do in the church. 500 years ago was the one we all can kind of point to and remember because it was a huge change. It was the end of the dark ages, the start of the Enlightenment. A man named Gutenberg invented the printing press. People started learning more and doing a lot of different things. 
We have the Reformation, this huge change in the church, right? This new thing that starts taking place. And what Phyllis Tickle says is 500 years, right? That's where we are. We're in one of these major times of upheaval where the world is changing, where the internet is fundamentally the new printing press, and people's way of thinking is fundamentally changing. And what, what Phyllis Tickle says is that every time this happens in the world, the church has to have a rummage sale. Okay? And I love this metaphor. It's especially apt, not just because we do rummage sales, but because churches tend to collect stuff. Did you know this? I dare you after church, go open a couple closets and see what you find around here. Okay? Well, the churches collect stuff over time. And what happens is God uses these 500-year periods for the church to get everything out and say, hey, when did we get this? Okay? What is this? Do we need this anymore? Why did we do this? And so every, the, the church is getting out, and Martin Luther said, indulgences. No, we don't want that one. We're getting rid of that. Okay, we put that on, this, on the cell pile. Okay? Uh, gospel of grace. Hey, we sort of lost this, but we want to use this. Let's get that and keep it, right? And so you, what the church has to do is go through all of its stuff and say, okay, keep or throw away. Okay? Or discover something new. Sometimes the church discovers things they had sort of lost. You ever do that when you get ready for a yard sale? You get in the closet, you're like, I forgot I owned this. This is great. Okay, sometimes the church has to do that too. It has to rediscover new ways of saying stuff that are sometimes actually old ways of saying things. So some things will be easy to drop. The example I gave at Bible study this week was flannel graphs. How many of you remember flannel graphs? Remember like a flannel and you had characters that you put slapped on? There was Jesus and then there were a bunch of other random dudes and ladies. Right, And so there was an old guy. He was always either Paul or Noah or Moses, depending on what you were, because it was never Jesus. Jesus was the only one that was only him. And you tell Bible stories. Praise God for flannel graphs. Some of us learned our Bibles on flannel graphs. Okay? But in the digital world, we don't need flannel graphs anymore. In, in the YouTube world, flannel graphs are not going to cut it. Okay? So flannel graphs, we'll put that in the cell pile. Now, but at the same time, teaching Bible stories... Helping our kids learn Bible stories? Oh, that's in the keep pile, right? And so you're sort of creating these two piles, the hold on to pile and the let loose pile. In fact, what what does Paul say in our verse from Thessalonians? He says, hold fast to what is good. So we got to take the good things. We've got to say, okay, this is a good thing. We got to not let go of this. But when it says hold fast to what is good, what I think it also implies is hold loosely to what's not good. Okay. And so what the church has to do is kind of go through its stuff, right? Mediums change, methods change, models change. The gospel, though, has to be rediscovered in any one of these 500-year periods. We've got to go back to what's most important. This leads me to my third metaphor, and this is one that I, that, that I came up with, okay? But I read this story of a, a man in England who went to a hand-me-down shop. And he bought a painting. It had this fancy, ornate frame. Uh, the guy did not like the painting, but he's like, okay, this is a really cool frame. It's a little expensive, like 160 bucks. I don't know what that is in pounds. Uh, it was 100 pounds, so something like 165 bucks. And he's like, okay, I, I don't like the picture, but I'm going to get it because I like this frame, and I'm going to save it. And then it sat in his closet for about three years. Okay? Then he got it out, kind of cleaned it up, and noticed a signature on the bottom of the painting. So he took it to an art dealer. 
The signature was of a man named Paul Cezanne. He was a very famous uh, painter in the late 1800s. The last of his paintings sold at auction for $60 million. The guy bought it for $165 for the frame. Now, the last I knew, no, they were, the last I can find, they were trying to figure out if it was authentic. They were trying to verify. I've never seen anything since on the story, but I found it interesting, right? Pictures need frames. Do you know this about paintings? Right? The frame helps protect the painting. Like the structure helps hold the painting so it doesn't crack, so it doesn't fade the same way. The frame is actually important for the picture. But, but do you understand? The picture is worth $60 million. The frame was worth $165. Okay? So here's what happens in the church. We, have a, we, we are great at building frames. At building structures. And we need structures. Like we need a way of doing things. We need things to be Presbyterian. We need decently in an order. We need meetings. Right? We need committees. And we need buildings. And we need all this stuff to help protect the gospel. Okay, the beautiful story of Jesus Christ that's more valuable than anything. But what happens is eventually we start loving the frames as much as we love the picture. Okay, this is what I think when somebody says they're spiritual but not religious. I think they're looking for a picture and all they see when they go to church is the frame. And unfortunately, it's sometimes true. We've got to be able to help people find what's core. This is a part of the sorting we do with the rummage sale. What's important, what's not important. What's the core? What's the picture? What's frame? And we can update the frame. Everybody see what I'm saying? Do you understand how much work that is? I just want everybody to really be clear. Like, to do that, you have to know your history. You've got to know why we do the things we do. You've got to know your theology. You've got to know where, why we believe what we believe. You've got to know your Bible to understand where some of this stuff comes from. That way you can do this. And then do you understand the relationships you have to have? Because you have to start talking about what we're doing. You know, understand the maturity and courage it has to take for us to say, okay, I like it this way, but I understand that we need to do something else. Right? For, for us to have those kind of conversations is difficult. It's hard. It means that we're all going to have to be, and I say this sometimes, right? That in this church, my job is to keep everybody in here a little unhappy. Okay, a little dissatisfied. Because if you're satisfied with everything, that means the church is perfect for you, and it means it's not perfect for a lot of other people. Okay, so it means we have to have the courage, the boldness to have some of those kind of conversations. This brings me to our fourth metaphor, that of a swing set. This one I got from my teacher, Len Sweet. How many of you remember swing sets as a kid? Do you remember you would get on the swing? And you see, watch little kids, they don't understand it. But eventually you figure out this movement, right, of kicking forward and leaning back. And then kicking back and leaning forward. And if you go like back and forth like this a whole bunch, eventually you can start sort of getting higher and higher and the swing really goes. Everybody see what I'm saying? But it's a kick forward, lean back. Okay? Kick back, lean forward. And it's the back and forth. It's the timing of both those things. And Len says that's really the future of the church. The churches that really are going to get a good ride, are really going to get moving, are not going to be churches that just kick forward. Not just churches that move into the future. Not just churches that stay in the past. But churches that can do both those things. 
and go back and forth. Future past. What uh, author Robert Weber, I like what he says. He talks about ancient future. Ancient future. I want to be ancient. I want to be future. Right? So uh, as a church, we, we see this a lot in worship, right? We've got contemporary songs, we've got hymns. And some people like one and some people don't like the other and some people like the other and don't like the one. And, but you know what? It's, it's both. In fact, we're, we're as a church, we're becoming a little more casual as a church, but we're also starting to do more liturgy. We did a creed today, everybody. Right? We're doing, we're, we're not losing our hymns. We're actually trying to, I'm trying to expand our hymn list a little bit. We're learning some new hymns. Right? It's both future and past. Ancient and future. Kick forward, kick back. That's going to be the movement of the future. And so, it, 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 part of that's got to be authenticity too, right? Like we were kind of joking about this when I had Bible study this week. Like, it would, like if we got a smoke machine and we got like fancy lights and I wrapped my sermon, it'd be terrible. Like it wouldn't be good at all because it wouldn't fit us, right? You can't just kick into the... You've got to do both. You've got to figure out what's authentic to you. See, that, that's, the, that's the challenge. The challenge is, kind of, how do you do that? So I think the future is not going to be as wild as you might think. Uh, for exa- it's going to fit what fits us. For example, we, we, we've talked a lot about wanting younger families, new families, having kids in our church. Um, well, how do we do that? Well, it used to be what you did was hire like a youth pastor. But I don't think that's our future at all. I think you, you reach families way, the way you can reach families. And I'll tell you how I think we can reach families and care for our families. Is we have a lot of really awesome grandparents in this church. Like what if as a church we all committed that we're going to be grandparents to the kids of our church? Okay, what if the kids of this church, when they have a, when they have a soccer game, there's like eight other people that show up to their soccer game? Okay? What if, if a kid in this church was selling subs for school, they could come to church and knew they would have a killing because all of these grandparents, they were at our, their church grandparents would come in and help them. Right? And see, that's not, that's not like super ancient. That, that's not super future. That's ancient. Right? Grandparents. Do you know how many kids don't know their grandparents? Or only have one parent at home? That's something we can do. But here's my quiz. If you want to know how we're doing on that, do you know the names of the kids in our church? Like you as a church member, do you know their names? Let alone what school they go to, let alone what they're into. Do you know their names? See, we got an opportunity there, but we got to move into that opportunity. Okay, this leads me. We've gone through phone booths, rummage sales, picture swings. I end with the image of Kitsugi Pottery. I learned this from my professor Len, but it's a very popular image right now. You may have heard of it. Do you know, have any of you have heard of Kitsugi pottery? You heard of this? Okay, so it's this Japanese art. And the idea of the art is that when a pot would break, teapot, okay, this is a fun day for this because we were using uh, teacups and stuff downstairs. Okay, that when pottery breaks, the idea of Kitsugi is to repair the pottery with gold or with silver. With precious jewels. And so artists take the time to take what was broken and make it more beautiful because it was broken. And so you can get ancient Japanese Kitsugi pottery, sells at auction for a great amount because they are gorgeous pieces of work. They were broken, everybody. They were cracked. And then they were made beautiful by an artist. 
right? I find this to be such a healing imagery. I, I talked about this a little bit last week that we, we need healing in our world, in our families, in our organizations. We should be people of healing, everybody, right? The, 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 the hard parts about you, the difficult, the brokenness that's in you should be some of the most beautiful parts because those are the parts that Jesus poured into and healed, right? Those are the golden parts. We should be people of healing. We should be people that are healing the world. Where this world is broken, that's where we should be. That's where we should be pouring out our love and our grace. We should be bringing, those should be the golden places. What does it mean to be a church of healing? See, Jesus was known for his preaching, his teaching, and his healing. And uh, in, 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 our, in our world, we've mainly made the church about preaching and teaching. In fact, when the, when the world said, when the government said, that we were not essential for healing. Basically, the church disagreed to that. Like, yep, we are not essential for healing. That may be the worst mistake we made in this whole COVID thing. Because the reality is we are essential for healing. My dad was a chaplain in a nursing home. And when COVID happened, they said, okay, it's now dangerous. You're not essential. You can't come to work. Like, what? This is the time where I should be there the most. This is where people actually need the chaplain the most. But, uh, but they said, no. See, we need to be people of healing, the church of the future. It won't even be about the preaching and the teaching. The preaching and the teaching will equip the healing. Healing. So how are we helping people heal psychologically, relationally, spiritually? How are we helping them find gold in those broken places? That's the future. We have to be Kitsugi artists. Having been healed ourselves, we go out and heal our world. And as we are healed and as we wrestle through our own rummage sale, I think we can move our church into an ancient future. That is not going to be easy. We're going to have to have a lot of conversations. We're going to have to adapt and keep adapting. We have to try to find our authentic selves. It's going to be a lot of adaptation. And I got news for you. I don't think it'll ever end. I think the future is changing so fast now that the word of the future is adaptation. You keep moving. You keep changing. You keep growing. Or else you stop. But here's, here's the cool thing. Back to Phyllis Tickle. One thing she says is that, you know what? The people that are in the church, leading the church every 500 years, are the people that church history remembers. We still talk about Luther, and we still talk about Calvin, and we still talk about Zwingli. Why? Because they were on deck during the changes, and what they did set the direction for the church for the next 500 years. And I actually think that over the next, the next 50 years, that what the church does in response to all this is really going to set the future of the church for hundreds of years. It's an awesome responsibility. It's a little scary. But I think it's also a great opportunity for us to see what the church can look like and to set the stage in this new world for how the church can operate. So let's participate in the rummage sale, in the conversations, and seeing how to have more spiritual conversations and helping people find that they can have those spiritual conversations here. Let's pray. Lord, may these images soak into us a little bit. May we understand in an awesome way what you're calling us to do. And may we rise to that challenge. In Jesus' name, amen.